I'm JJ Heller, and this is Instrumental, a show about the big and small moments that shape our lives. In every episode, my guest and I start near the end of their story and work our way back to the beginning. I hope our conversation reminds you that every second matters because none of us knows which moment will be the one that changes everything. Hi, everyone. It's JJ. And it's Dave. We have kind of a different sort of episode for you today. It doesn't fit our normal format, but we wanted to release it anyway because I don't know if you've heard, but there's a really big election coming up very soon. I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah, it's like uh, they're voting for the student body president and our daughter. No, just kidding. The presidential election is right on the horizon and tensions are... Hi, to say the least. Mm-hmm. We are on the verge of a huge cultural moment. And your candidate may win the election, and they may not. And even if your candidate wins, there's a good chance things won't always go your way in the future. I think the odds of that happening are very good. <laughs> like 100%. Like, are you a human? Yes. <laughs> It'll happen. Yes, you will be disappointed in the future. So the conversation we have in this episode will hopefully provide you with some tools to deal with those frustrations and disappointments in a healthy and productive way. That's right. Just because you find yourself upset when things didn't go according to your plans, it doesn't mean that you need to remain stuck in your bitterness indefinitely. You can move on. The reason why we invited our guest onto the podcast is because he wrote a book that literally changed Dave's life. That's right. Dr. Fred Luskin is the director of the Stanford Forgiveness Project, which has successfully explored forgiveness therapy with people who suffered from the violence in Northern Ireland, Sierra Leone, as well as the attacks on the World Trade Center on 9-11. Dr. Luskin currently serves as a senior consultant in health promotion at Stanford University and is a professor at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. We all know that it's good to forgive, and we're supposed to forgive, but sometimes we don't know how to do it because we haven't even defined what forgiveness is or we have flawed definitions of forgiveness. So before we get into our interview with Dr. Luskin, we wanted to share some of his definitions of what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Forgiveness is for you and not the offender. Forgiveness is taking responsibility for how you feel. It's about your healing and not about the people who hurt you. It's also making peace with the word no. It's a trainable skill, just like learning to throw a baseball. And can improve your mental and physical health. It's becoming a hero instead of a victim. Forgiveness is a choice. All right, so that's what forgiveness is. Let's talk about what it is not, according to Dr. Luskin. Forgiveness is not condoning unkindness. It's not forgetting that something painful happened to you. It's not excusing poor behavior. And it's not denying or minimizing your hurt. And it doesn't mean reconciling with the offender. Yes, that's an important distinction that Dr. Luskin makes. Forgiveness is simply making peace with the pain that happened to you, but it's not reconciliation. 
And forgiveness does not mean you give up having feelings. Everyone has feelings. But according to Dr. Luskin, just because someone hurt you or something bad happened to you, it doesn't mean that you need to suffer indefinitely. And I think that's a key point of forgiveness is sometimes we get stuck and we just end up suffering for no reason. Yeah, and we punish ourselves. I had some significant personal revelations about myself when I read Dr. Luskin's book about 10 years ago. I read his examples and definitions of grievances and unforgiveness, and I realized that I was harboring a lot of anger and bitterness in my mind and in my body, even though I don't consider myself to be an angry person. I don't yell. I don't throw stuff at the wall. I don't hit anybody. But I was actually an angry person. Yeah, you were just like super grumpy all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then you read this book. Yeah, and I ended up realizing that I was taking the actions of other people, the words of other people, circumstances that were outside of my control, and I was taking them way too personally and just making myself miserable. And what I realized is that I was an angry person, even though I didn't necessarily fit what I thought was the definition of an angry person. Dr. Luskin's book is called Forgive for Good. I got to chapter seven and I read a quote by an author named Frederick Beekner, And it was a moment when everything started to make sense to me. JJ, I wanted you to read that quote. Okay. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) That quote. It's so ironic because we hold so intensely to this desire to make the other person pay for what they did to us, but the only one we're punishing is ourselves. And I think that is a critical revelation that we need to have is to recognize that we are the ones who are making ourselves miserable. We are the ones who are eating ourselves from the inside out. And I hope that our conversation with Dr. Luskin is as helpful to you as his work has been for me. Well, let's jump in. You don't see forgiveness in the way you like seeing a cut heal. You know, it's inner. And so you can't really judge it until somebody comes back and says, this changed in me. Hmm. So in one of my earliest classes, there was an angry woman who was in chronic pain And this was early for me. I didn't know that much. And she was just pissy. Um, That's the only word I can use. (laughs) And, And I didn't know a lot about her story, but she did not seem like a happy camper. 
I met her because we chatted or became friendly in some way. And I met her for dinner once or lunch. This is at least 20 plus years ago. And she told me that the forgiveness stuff like stuck in her claw. And one day she realized that's what she needed. Like some voice came into her head and she had been holding bitterness because her ex-husband had, um, they had had a very bad end of marriage and they were driving on his motorcycle once where he turned around to yell at her and lost control of the motorcycle. And she developed injuries that led her to chronic pain. And he developed injuries that led to some brain damage. Somewhere around the time of the class, she was really enmeshed in that. And I saw her, I'm going to say six months later. But she said something along the lines of, you know, the forgiveness stuff just never stopped like knocking at my door. And it turned out that after a while, I realized that we had co-created the marriage mess. It wasn't just him. And I needed to let that go. And now, even though we've finalized the divorce, I'm helping him a bit with his injuries. There's no reason to be bitter. The marriage didn't work, but there's no reason to hate somebody. Hmm. And I remember her telling me that, and I went, wow, this works. You know, like, even (laughs) though I, I, I couldn't even say that I had anything to do with it because I'm not sure how much I have to do with it, but forgiveness works. And, and that's a crucial distinction. I believe that there's multiple ways to activate inside of a human being some beautiful qualities that are latent there and different keys unlock them. would you describe the difference between the kind of forgiveness you're advocating versus somebody who just kind of gets taken advantage of? I've listened to myself talk now for 25 years, and I've never made the suggestion that anybody be a doormat. But I I think the, yeah, the perception from some people is, you know, such a strong sense of justice that I'm not going to let somebody who's wronged me get away with it, you know? Of course. And that's the resistance that people have that doesn't come from me or forgiveness at all. It comes from their own consciousness. And you just gave a strong example of that because you could listen to me till the day I die and I'll never use any words even close to that. Right. People are afraid of their vulnerability. They don't like the fact that they can be hurt. They don't like the fact that they're not all powerful. They hate the fact that they're not in control of many things. So they develop all these mental systems to hide their vulnerability from themselves. And one of the great ways to hide it is I'm tough or nobody's gonna mess with me. Hmm. And that does hide our vulnerability and it limits our ability to love 
and, and make deep connections with people, but it's also ineffective. If in your marriage, every time one of you did something wrong, like you made sure to give the other person the finger just to let them know that they're not getting away with anything, you would destroy your relationship because everybody gets away with stuff. That's the nature of this planet. It's not perfect, and people hurt each other, and they err. Although your affirmative answer is, yeah, you want to be as assertive as you can be with expressing your needs. You want to learn how to grieve your wounds so you don't stay stuck in anger. And sometimes you need to learn to be flexible so that there are certain situations which may not work out and you have to flexibly shift to a different situation, maybe to get the results you want. Hmm. But being a doormat has nothing to do with that. So if I'm in a relationship where I'm treated badly, I may need another relationship. <laughs> the the big, let me just tell you the two biggest takeaways, which is what I think you're asking. One is remembering kindness will better serve you than remembering unkindness. Mm. So if instead of making sure that people don't F with you again, you make sure to remember when they were kind or good-hearted and appreciate that and reward them, you will increase your life satisfaction mm. more than you will by being on guard. Even though being on guard can be very useful, for certain people who are untrustworthy, but you want to practice the appreciation piece because there's a lot of kindness out there. And if we weren't so scared, we see more of it. But two, what you want to focus on in terms of the resilience or doormat thing is what you really want to develop is your own inner strength to recognize that under most circumstances, even if people are unkind, I can cope with it. And that's the strength that is so powerful, that you stop being so afraid because you know that you're strong inside, not that somehow you're going to get everybody to stop being unkind to you. And that's such a simple shift, but so powerful. Hmm. Yeah, that the strength comes in the forgiveness. From forgiveness, from ignoring things, you know, like the serenity prayer, like, you know, some things you can't control, so chill. <laughs> in summary. <laughs> it's an amazing paraphrase. <laughs> we brought women from Northern Ireland who had had their sons murdered in their violence, Catholics and Protestants. And we worked with them for a week. Was this at Stanford? Yeah. They stay on campus and they go through classes like all day long? Or how, how does this play out? My partner in this was a Presbyterian minister, Byron Bland. And he got people from the Presbyterian Church to host these women in their homes. Hmm. And then 
we got local food sources to donate food, and they stayed with us for about a week, and we spent the days teaching them forgiveness. Wow. Do you have any first impressions of what the women were like? I had never, ever, ever, ever seen that much horror and suffering in a group. And I literally didn't know what to do with it all. And it was a big challenge to me. So during that first day, are the ladies sharing their stories? How did you end up understanding that this was going to be such a big job? Well, I knew what they were there for. You know, it wasn't like a... A secret. Bridge club. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But no, you know... We don't spend much time sharing stories. Hmm. We believe that the story that you tell is your prison. And so you have to change the story. And you don't want to continue to keep yourself in prison by telling the same old story. So it's a gentle tension because everybody wants to have their story told and... We have to remind people that forgiveness is a change in story. And so the grievance story that you've been used to, that's actually your problem, not the event. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting because two people can experience the same thing and one can view themselves as a victim and one can view themselves as a victor, right? Exactly. So... I mean, I know that one of the things we did when they showed up, and again, this is 18 years ago, we brought everybody to a window on Stanford's campus, and the sun was shining. It was January. We we brought them to the sun, and Belfast was, you know, cold and gray, and we had them open their arms and feel the rays of the sun hit their bodies and remind them that the same spirit, whatever it is, God, that killed their kid also sends them sunshine now. Hmm. And, And you need to open back up to the sunshine because that's as much a part of this earth as the loss of your child. And you don't want the loss of your child to blot out that sunshine for the rest of your life. Hmm. Wow. So that was probably the first intervention that we did. Was that a moment going out into the sunshine where you felt, okay, we, we can do this. Like I've seen this before. This first group was not many, like six people from Catholic and Protestant. And I was too naive and stupid to know how hard this was going to be. So I came in there full of enthusiasm, and and it turned out to be warranted, and we had lots of support. It was the second group that was the biggest challenge because— these people went back to Northern Ireland and then they brought people back with them. So we expanded it. We went 
from like six, seven people visiting us to 18 or so the next time. Hmm. And that was almost too much for me. Really? That sitting in a room with like 18 people because somebody had killed one of their immediate family members was just, I, 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 I don't, I don't know what that even means, but it was, it was awful. Just, just recognizing how much harm and horror are in this world was chilling. And I felt like I had a little Band-Aid on a cut artery, but I did it the best I could. But that feeling has never left me, that the insignificance of our tools to heal, it creates both fear and humility in doing work like that. It's interesting for me to hear you say that a group of 18 was almost overwhelming to just think of the sheer number of people walking around on the planet. Exactly. What do you do with that feeling? Well, that's a great question. I mean, sometimes I feel discouraged that my little contribution is not enough. Sometimes it pushes me to watch like six episodes of Friends in a row. <laughs> sometimes, and it's, it's had me not teach forgiveness for a year or two at a time. Just it's like too much. Hmm. Since Donald Trump has been president, and it probably started a little before then, but it feels even harder to talk about forgiveness than it had before. I live in a very Democrat, left-wing part of the country, and there's very little forgiveness here for Republicans or Donald Trump or even the George Floyd thing. There's just a lot of one-sided political anger here hmm. that, that I'm not disagreeing with. I'm just saying it doesn't leave much room for forgiveness and and then the politics that, that Donald Trump appears to support do not suggest forgiveness. So culturally, it's been a hard time to teach this and to entertain it. And I don't sense anywhere near the cultural conversation there was about forgiveness in times past. Hmm. So for me... I started a project in Colombia where we're helping parts of that country sow forgiveness. I'm in discussion now with the ambassador to the United States from Afghanistan about um, teaching forgiveness in their country. I, I'm 66 and I probably need to do what I'm going to do in the next few years, you know, f as my legacy. So after a little more fallow period of maybe more Friends episodes or, <laughs> you know, Seinfeld or whatever, I have a little more detachment now being older. And I think I'm making another effort to just try to bring more people to understand the healing nature of forgiveness the letting go of the sense of a, a grievance. What do you hope to accomplish in the time that you have left with your work? 
I will tell you that it's to some degree a spiritual question more than a like accomplishment question. Hmm. Um, we have things to do on this planet to try to help. Part of our purpose here is to use those skills to help. And two, there's a balance, but I have a sense that I don't want to feel that I left it on the mat or the court. Like I, I want to feel like it gave what I had. Yeah. And so that's as much of it as anything else. I don't know what I expect to accomplish, but I have a belief and a hope that the good that we do in this world matters I have a platform to try to put forth some healing and the thought of like wasting that potential just, it gives me angst. Hmm. Like there's a fire and you still have water that you can pour on it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe only a, a little bit of a, like a, you know, toy pistol, but at least I have something. <laughs> Going back to what you said previously about how the grievance story that you've been carrying with you can be your prison, yet the stories that most people are hearing over and over again are revenge stories. When they stream a movie from home, when they watch a television show, so often the narrative is resolved by someone getting revenge rather than coming to a place of forgiveness. And I'm curious to know how you have processed the way that our culture perceives forgiveness or the completion of a narrative. I don't think they know much about it. Um, I think there is an evolutionary default of protection and fear and threat that's very easily stimulated and I don't think there's enough education on the necessity of changing that story and altering that perception, both for one's own health and the health of the community. In the tribalized nature of our political world right now, just like in the Northern Ireland world, both sides see peace and safety as some vanquishing of the other. Mm -hmm. That was the basic premise between Catholics and Protestants. Both of them would say, of course we want peace. We desperately want peace. But then you would ask them, well, what does peace mean? And they would say some limitation, amelioration, defeat of the other side. And I sense a lot of that now with red states and blue states and Democrats and Republicans. There's mistrust and there's, there's more and more research that significant percentages of both sides are not opposed or not unwilling to have some violence to protect their side or not unwilling for their side to engage in, let's say, not fully ethical behaviors to win those qualities can maintain in the brain and nervous system indefinitely until they're worked on. Hmm. And I believe that forgiveness is the name 
that human beings give to our innate capacity to work through that, to get past that degree of believing that there's an enemy out there that we have to conquer before we'll be safe. Mm. In reading your book, there were two analogies that when I'm talking to friends who are harboring resentment or sharing their grievance story with me, I come back to again and again. And one is the policeman with the radar gun. Um, yeah. And then the other one is the Beekner quote about sitting down for the feast. All of those came from the second group of people from Northern Ireland. Really? From the necessity of trying to reach them. Hmm. I have a Stanford PhD. I was working at the Stanford University School of Medicine. So, you know, we're used to talking to well-educated, sophisticated people. And then these people show up with sometimes a sixth grade education and their only claim to fame is that somebody killed somebody in their family. Hmm. So I had to figure out on the fly, and then it educated me over the next few years that I'd better get some metaphors to use, otherwise I'm going to miss half the population. Yeah. So the two metaphors that are the most useful, one of them is the one you said about the police officer that... Yeah, I think we should probably explain that analogy. Like, Yeah, well, I, I would. an unenforceable rule is one of the rules in our head of what we expect from other people or life that we can't enforce. Telling a drunk you shouldn't drink, telling somebody who wants to lie to you that they shouldn't lie, those are unenforceable because they're going to do what they want. But sometimes it feels like, wait, wait, but I'm right. So the analogy that I had of the police officer who's paid to stop speeders, and he's sitting there on the road and all these people are speeding by and he's got their license and everything, but he starts his car and it doesn't work and he can't give his tickets out. So the key to that analogy is each of us writes tickets to other people that we can't give to other people or we try to give them and they laugh at our tickets. <laughs> and then metaphorically, like that police officer, we could fill up the whole backseat of our car or our brain with tickets that nobody wants. And then we could get pissed at the whole world because nobody wants our tickets. <laughs> That's pretty strong analogy for how our minds work. The other one that I think is the crucial metaphor, and this one came from the Northern Ireland group, that was the one that made all the difference for their understanding. They had a hard time figuring out what forgiveness is. And I remember going in front of them and saying, well, just think you're at an airport. You're waiting for somebody you love's plane to land so you can leave. And you find out that that plane can't land because all of the gates on the ground are taken by other planes. And even there's other planes circling 
overhead waiting for those gates. So your loved one's plane, who knows if it'll ever get there. It may never land. And I said, that's what your grudges are. They're, they're airplanes that can't land. And they keep the whole system gummed up. Are, are you saying the grudges are the planes that are at the gate that are not allowing the circling planes to land? They're the whole mess of the whole system. It's the whole thing. They're at the gate. They're circling. But, you know, you can't move on until all of these planes land and do their thing. Hmm. And that changed the whole tenor of the experience. All of a sudden, they, oh, I get it. We got to move on. Do you recall where you were when you came up with these analogies? Well, that one, I was in front of 20 people from Northern Ireland trying to figure out how the hell that I'm going to make my stupidly complex ideas understandable to them. So you came up with it on the spot in front of a crowd? I tried out a number of them. That was the one that worked. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you know that it worked? They laughed. (laughs) When I hear Dr. Luskin talk about that airplane and airport analogy, what it actually reminds me of is our circulatory system in our body. Mm. And yeah. But if you think about it, our heart is pumping blood through our veins. It is pumping life through our veins. And if it stops, that's called a heart attack and you die, right? But this airplane analogy, these all these planes being stuck at these gates, it just means that you're stuck in the past. Something happened to you emotionally and you have never moved on. And your circulatory, your emotional circulatory system is stuck. And you are going to die if you don't move on. You know what <laughs> I mean? This is serious. It is. It's a big deal. Yeah. The crazy thing is we think of forgiveness as only an emotional problem. But it really does, in fact, affect our physical bodies. In fact, the Stanford Forgiveness Project is one of the first research studies of the physical implications of unforgiveness. Well, and benefits of forgiveness. That's right. Here are some health results that the Stanford Forgiveness Project and other studies have revealed about forgiveness. People who are more forgiving report fewer health problems. In addition, learning to forgive may reduce feelings of hostility, a proven risk factor for heart disease. And people who blame other people for their troubles have a higher incidence of illness such as cardiovascular disease and cancer crazy. People who imagine forgiving their offender note immediate improvement in their cardiovascular, muscular, and nervous systems. Just imagining forgiving somebody makes you feel better. Imagine if you actually did it. You would feel even better, better. (laughs) Better, better. (laughs) Better than better. I think it's safe to say that choosing to practice forgiveness is good on a whole bunch of levels. Yeah, like it lowers your blood pressure. Like, and you feel good. Yeah. (laughs) So we should try it. Everyone. (laughs) The collective we. And when I say we, I mean the world. Yes, we the world. 
Well, we're going to pivot the rest of the show to explore Dr. Luskin's story as he began to form the Stanford Forgiveness Project over 20 years ago and learn just how difficult he found it to teach forgiveness in our culture. I was the recipient of an enormous amount of grace Hmm. all throughout any part of cultivating this forgiveness project. People helped me. People at Stanford were incredibly respectful. There was a, a recruitment ad that I put for a study on forgiveness while I was a pre-doc at the Stanford School of Medicine. And one of the faculty who was not happy to see that this medical school part was being used to research forgiveness wrote like an internal like letter to all the other faculty saying like, do any of you know what this guy is doing about forgiveness in our center and why is he allowed and stuff like that. And my my mentor wrote her back a very strong, like, well, not only do I know, but I'm actively supporting Fred, and it would be really good if more people were doing work like this, that the world needs forgiveness. And how did that feel to get that kind of endorsement? I mean, I I can't separate that out from the multiple ways that he was helpful. I felt supported and that there was always advice to be offered. I mean, Ken and I are still friends. This is 25 years later. That's amazing. Do you recall the early days of the Forgiveness Project when you really felt like you were onto something as you began formulating what would eventually become the content of your books? I don't know that I felt that I was on to something. What I felt was there was a energy of support for this that I needed to pay attention to. So doors opened, things worked out, help was offered, people responded in ways that were more profound than just, wow, Fred, you've stumbled on something. I mean, I knew that, like, forgiveness was a good thing. I certainly didn't need my research to show me that, oh, we have something good here. I mean, (laughs) you know, like, forgiveness had been around for a while. (laughs) Some pretty good people had made some strong statements about it. It's the central tenet of Christianity. So it didn't need me. I really felt compelled to do something that linked the spiritual realm with the scientific realm. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, back when I was starting this and even through the beginning of most of it, the the spiritual religious explanations of things and the scientific explanations of things were not the same, and neither group was that interested in talking to each other. Hmm. And I was one of a group of people 
that felt that they had a lot to teach each other, Hmm. that science was a wonderful tool for the religious traditions to know whether they were teaching just myth or whether they were teaching things that had real value. And the religious and spiritual traditions talked about the stuff that really matters when a lot of science was not really that important. Hmm. To me, it felt very important at that time to show, and there were other people doing the same, starting then with meditation and hope and gratitude. I was doing forgiveness, but there was a group of us who were taking ideas limited by the spiritual way of disseminating information. And now we were teaching and researching it and showing that was important, that we could prove that it worked, that it was teachable, but it may not be limited to um, religious domains, that forgiveness, one piece of it may be explainable by faith or, say, non-material methods, but a good part of it was explainable by material methods. Hmm. And just how meditation research is showing all sorts of things, maybe these religious and spiritual practices should be much more available to the culture at large and not limited to religious instruction or dissemination. When I read your book, Forgive for Good, one of the things that really impressed upon me was that you had laid out a progression for forgiveness, to be able to recognize that in order to forgive someone, first you have to be harboring resentment or a grudge, and you have to recognize that there's a grudge And if you haven't done that, you don't have the capacity to forgive. And I'm curious to know, as you were laying out that progression, is that something that you had already intuited naturally over your lifetime, or was that something that you were working out as you were working with participants in the forgiveness project? It probably took 15 years of teaching to really understand the forgiveness progression and really be solid as to how to teach it. Wow. Um, It it was an ever-evolving process, in part because people do not want generally to forgive and that they get very cranky (laughs) when people ask them to forgive. And there's an enormous amount of resistance and much of teaching forgiveness is learning to deal with that resistance. (laughs) I mean, the biggest memories of teaching forgiveness are the resistance. When I started, I gave a lot of talks in front of therapists, and their resistance always took the form of, well, what are you doing? Are you telling us that it's okay for people to molest their children? So that's a very powerful form of resistance. I've had other people accuse me of being insensitive to their pain because forgiveness was not in the cultural framework at all. So almost every time that I'd give a public talk, 
somebody would jump up and say, yeah, that makes sense, but how do you forgive Adolf Hitler? Besides the people who just got hostile to me for, in their mind, minimizing the suffering that they had shown, that that is the central piece of teaching forgiveness, is expecting, dealing with, honoring people's vice grip that they have on their stories of suffering. Have you found a response that you generally give to a person who comes with a statement like that? You know, the quality of learning how to handle that took years. And now I'm gentler and I don't push quite as much. So I don't get the same amount of resistance. That was the biggest education of my life as a forgiveness teacher. You know, as you're saying that, what I'm realizing as we're having this conversation is the pace in which you speak is very measured and unhurried. And it reminds me a bit of Mr. Rogers, <laughs> where like he just operated on a different time frame than everybody else. And because he was unhurried, it was really hard to get upset with him because he was constantly forcing people to slow down, you know? You're right. You are. What you, what you just said, I will translate, but I had to grow as a human being. I had to work on my resistance. I had to develop more kindness inside so that there was less stuff in me for people to resist. That's what took me so long to understand. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so you, you were saying it took about 15 years for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes it it feels as if I haven't grown at all. <laughs> there will be... <laughs> it's a challenging thing. But you're getting at the question of, I think, some forms of spiritual growth. Hmm. Were, were you previously a much more hurried person? Totally. At the beginning, I saw it more as a tussle. And so maybe I took it more personally. And so there was more place in me for people to argue with. But what would happen if after a while I started seeing it more through compassion? Compassion of the student whose limitations of mind keep them suffering. Hmm. But it's not an easy process at all yeah. to make any movement in that way. Yeah, I suppose as a teacher, it's kind of the transition between why can't you get this to if only you could get this, you know, that your life would be changed. Well, isn't that Jesus's words on the cross? Hmm. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Yeah. And those words, even though, I mean, I'm not 
officially a Christian. And I mean, I was born Jewish and have been a yoga Hindu Buddhist. Those words are defining to me hmm. that the only thing he has for the people like killing him is compassion because they don't know what they're setting in motion for themselves. Going back to our culture's obsession with revenge, the contrast to Christ's behavior on the cross could not be more stark. Yeah, you know, it really kind of hit me uh, earlier this week. I don't really listen to pop music very much, but this week I was driving and I heard this song for the first time and I just recognized it as super brilliant. It was really clever songwriting and I pulled into the house and I was like, JJ, you have to hear this song. It's so clever. So it's this song called I Hope and it starts out by saying like, I hope that she makes you smile. I hope that she makes you happy. I hope that you have all of these special moments together. And then at the end, it's like, and then I hope she cheats like you cheated on me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dagger. <laughs> and it's a really clever turn of phrase. And yet, as I was listening to it, I was also like, oh, that's a revenge story. Yeah, so classic. And what she's actually doing is she's harboring a grievance. She's saying, you hurt me and I want you to hurt too. And what it reminded me of was this list of questions that Dr. Luskin asks in his book to help you recognize, are you telling a grievance story? And so here are a couple of questions that you can ask yourself to see, do I need to forgive someone? Have you told your story more than twice to the same person? Do you replay the events that happen to you more than two times a day in your mind? Do you find yourself speaking to the person who hurt you even when that person is not there? Does your story focus primarily on your pain and what you have lost? And so going back to that song, I hope, I hear that song and what I actually hear is someone talking to themselves. Like, I don't actually hear them having a conversation. No. It's not a dialogue, It's an right? imaginary conversation. Yeah. And so it's just this person holding all of this grief and what they're doing. It's like that famous quote that says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, right? Yeah. It's like, we need to start telling these forgiveness stories because I just looked and last week was the first time I heard that song. And the music video has been viewed 69 million times already, you guys. It's like we are spreading messages of unforgiveness and they're really fun, but they're not helpful. It is a really good song. It is. <laughs> I don't want to just pick on that one song. I know. It's, it, it's actually a really good song. Yeah, it was a great example. But like pay attention is essentially what I'm saying. Yeah, don't let that be the only narrative <laughs> in your life. Well, start recognizing it. When you're watching TV and you're watching someone get revenge as the conclusion of a narrative. When you're listening to a breakup song and you're hearing someone express their grievance and their anger, is that actually helping? I dug my keys into the side of his pretty little... Yeah. Sorry, Carrie. <laughs> 
And again, there's nothing like inherently wrong or evil about those songs, but I think you're right. I think we need to be aware of the messaging that we are exposing ourselves to. We're musicians and our job is to express emotion. And so you want to be able to put words around an experience like that and even what you're feeling, but then you also want to have the tools to combat those negative emotions, to go like, this is what I felt and now I need to speak truth to it to do what is healthy for me and my family and the people that I love who are around me. Mm-hmm. Our final segment takes place 30 years in the past as a personal experience became the catalyst of Dr. Luskin's future work with forgiveness. This act includes a deep wound, an honest conversation with his wife, and filet mignon. Because somebody abandoned me without notice and reason, and that person had been very, very close to me, I was devastated at the loss. I mean, devastated. I got access, which I still have, to the pain of abandonment and loss without reason. And so it gave me empathy into all sorts of people's suffering, but it also gave me a truthfulness as to how I contributed to that suffering. And that's what now separates me from people who have been hurt but haven't moved on. I saw all the ways that I made it worse by blaming and yelling and feeling sorry for myself and criticizing and being harsh and unforgiving and how much suffering that caused to my wife and my friends at that time. So I can relate to both the deep, deep, deep wound of loss, like the world is not a stable, fair place. I can still touch that. But I can also touch all the ways that I put kerosene on that fire. Hmm. And what I learned through my own suffering was how to stop putting kerosene on that fire. And that's the piece that I brought forward to teach. Yes, (laughs) life can absolutely suck and people can do the worst stuff imaginable. And there's always hope for how you can cope better or take better care of yourself, or see things through more kindness. So what happened is he had abandoned me and rebuffed my connections. And then a while later, my wife came to me one day and said, Fred, I still love you, but I don't like you as much. (laughs) And that was not a pleasant thing to hear. And she said, you're just too bitter. And I literally expected better from you when we when we connected. I, I did not see this in my future. Were you expecting her to say something like that to you, or did it feel shocking? I mean, in retrospect, yeah, because she had a kind strength. She said what she said with kindness, but I needed to hear it. Yeah. And... She had probably said it before. I just had never listened, Hmm. is my guess. That spurred me to change, and I tried again to connect with him, and this time we agreed. But I had already practiced some forgiveness. This was a number of years later. 
and I'm going to meet him. And I realized at that moment that my injury and wound just didn't matter that much. Like it was five years later. And what difference did it make if I had a chance to fully heal this? What would I get from clinging to this? And and I'm sitting here thinking, and my mind is like being pulled in like six different directions, you know. But the positiveness of that, of Fred, you have a chance to heal, to not carry this around anymore. Take it. So when I met him, we simply hugged. He said, it's nice to see you. We didn't really talk much about what happened, but we very quickly got into an extremely pleasant conversation as if nothing had happened because I had accepted the wound. I no longer wanted the negativity. I recognized that I was willing to give him space to have made a mistake. Like I had no need whatsoever for this grudge. And by seeing him and opening myself to that, the grudge wasn't there anymore. It was just old news. Hmm. And the freedom was unbelievable, just unbelievable. That experience galvanized the Stanford Forgiveness Project. Hmm. I think it's so interesting that most of us acknowledge the fact that we would experience more peace and happiness if we let go of our grudge and our bitterness. But there's just something about, like, we just want to grip onto our own sense of justice. That's right. And... (laughs) <laughs> when we know that that we could have so much more fulfillment in life if we were willing to let it go. And you'd have better relationships. You know that without forgiveness, you don't really have a marriage. It just, it will not grow because you see the flaws of each other. Both of you have made mistakes that have hurt each other. And if you can't let them go, you harm the relationship. So that's so deeply true in an intimate partnership. And yet, most people don't even take that simple wisdom to their most important relationship. Hmm. You know, that famous thing, would you rather be happy or be right? <laughs> and, and that's really an important consideration. Over the course of your relationship, did he ever apologize? I didn't need an apology. I had come to peace within myself, and I don't exactly know how, but I found out not that long after we reconciled what had happened, and it was helpful to have a cognitive understanding of the pressures that he was under, but that didn't matter anymore. It was so much better to have the friendship back than to hold on to any of my own 
bitterness or righteousness. It was, you know, Paul Newman had a really famous line about why he didn't cheat on Joanne Woodward, which um, it turns out may not have been totally true. But (laughs) But it's a good line. (laughs) It was a great line. He was asked, so why wouldn't you cheat? And he said, why would I sneak out to McDonald's when I have filet mignon at home? Mm. Why would I need the McDonald's of like any bitterness when I had this wonderful friendship back? It's, it was just so clear. They weren't even in the same arena. He and I are again the best of friends. So that's the only part of the story now that's interesting to me. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> What do you think might have happened if your wife hadn't had that conversation with you to kind of wake you up from the miserable state that you found yourself in? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I would not be the person that I am today without her wisdom that helped me in so many ways, that being one among them. It wasn't just the conversation. It was the kind of conversation she had and the way she had it. This was a person who was deep and centered. And without that wise caring, I don't know. I might have become more bitter and devolved. Um, I can't answer that. I, I just know I really appreciate the fact that it came when it did. You know, about 25 years ago, it was really popular for kids in church youth groups to wear those little bracelets that had the letters WWJD on it. You remember that? Yeah, what would Jesus do? Uh Uh-huh. In the political climate we find ourselves in right now, I think it's pretty obvious what he would do. And as a follower of Jesus myself, that's exactly what I want to be known for and committed to. And I hope you, as a listener, do too. Well, if you found this conversation to be helpful, would you please share it with someone you love? In a culture that is so saturated with a spirit of fear and division and revenge, learning about and practicing forgiveness can change your life, because I know it changed mine. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Luskin and the Stanford Forgiveness Project, please visit learningtoforgive.com. And please be kind to your neighbors. What she said. This episode of Instrumental was produced by me, JJ Heller. And me, Dave Heller. Our theme music is my song, Big Love, Small Moments. That I helped write. (laughs) To find out more about me, listen to more of my songs, or watch my music videos, please visit jjheller.com. That's two letter J's, H-E-L-L-E-R.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Instrumental. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.